Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome David and Gil from Angular Ventures. Gil is the general partner and founder of Angular. He has been an active venture investor focused on enterprise technology companies born in Europe and Israel since 2005. As a venture investor and angel, he has backed over 30 companies. Prior to founding Angular, Gil was a partner at DFJ Esprit and a principal at Index Ventures in London, where he helped manage their pan-European seed portfolio. David is a partner who, prior to joining Angular, was employee number 16 at Airtable, where he led growth and partnerships, developing full-stack GTM strategies and scaling the company to over 500 employees. The company grew from zero to 200,000 customers and reached a $5.77 billion valuation. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. The 15th of December is the day you need to have in mind. EUVC is hosting a webinar with Kathy, David and Andreas. Kathy will show us how to approach PR as an individual and as a firm. Sign up at eu.vc forward slash events. David and Gil, welcome to the show. It's so awesome having you with us here. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. So before we start, I just want to hear a bit about how you came to be the founding team, or you're the founder, Gil, and you, David, joining afterwards uh, of Angular Ventures. You are probably one of the firms that are most known in Europe, despite your size not being incredibly big. So Gil, would you start us telling us about the story of why you founded Angular and why you came up with the name Angular? Uh, sure. I, I, the... Um quick version of the founding story um, is that I moved from the U.S. to Israel to join a VC firm in 2005 and worked in Israel as a VC for seven years. And then in 2012, Index Ventures recruited me to London. Um, I really had no plan or desire to do European venture, but it was a great opportunity. And I pretty quickly realized that Europe was full of amazing technologists, amazing founders um, that were just as good as the Israeli founders. Um, and then I realized that a lot of these founders were, the, the company challenges were very similar to the company challenges that Israeli companies were dealing with, meaning you're starting in the wrong location and you're trying to get global, you're trying to penetrate the U.S. market, which is still the largest market for innovative software. Um, and I realized that there were very few European VCs that had a background in investing in enterprise and deep tech companies the way I did as an Israeli VC, um, and that there were tremendous benefits to looking across an industry, across geographies, and the geography didn't really matter all that much. Um, so Angular Ventures kind of came out of that realization that it made sense to build a firm that was relatively specific in terms of the thematics around the kinds of companies, the kind of founders, the kind of technologies we were willing to back, kind of risk we were willing to take, but relatively broad in the geographic area, and, but still unified with, okay, these are non-US founders from you know, Western Europe and Israel or you know, mainland Europe um, and Israel, penetrating global markets, trying to get to California, trying to get to New York, trying to sell into American customers. That was a unifying theme. Um, and it was coverable. So a person based in London or Tel Aviv or Berlin can reasonably cover Europe and Israel. Um, and that was the, the founding story of Angular. Um, the name Angular, um, 
I, I was on vacation with my wife and I spent the entire time reading the dictionary, um, the A section of the dictionary and checking if the word ventures.com was available. And uh, Angular was pretty much the only one that was available. But then I told myself that it had to do with, you know, the, the, the kind of founders we were backing, right? They were usually people that were deeply technical. They were real specialists in, in one area. So they were Angular founders as opposed to well-rounded founders. And I think that still is something that, um, that we we gravitate towards. I, th I think, you know, so particularly when, when we founded the firm and it, it took me four years to raise the fund. But, you know, when we when I started thinking about this in 2013, 2014, um, most European VCs were backing these kind of super well-rounded founders who came from Berlin or Shoreditch and wore hoodies and sneakers and kind of were very, very specific, well-rounded. And we were backing, you know, oddballs who were doing crazy technology and were really, really good in one area. So that's, that's where, where the name of the firm came from. That's a cool story. Um, Gil, one question before I ask you, David, how you how you came to join the firm. You said something that I have to dive a bit into, which is, well, one person could, could cover Europe and, and, and Israel, which is something that I know a lot of fund funds in Europe, as an example, say, nah, Europe is, Europe is too wide for one person or two persons. It, it should be a bigger team if it's pan-European and very, very focused on, on one vertical. But you're both deep tech and also enterprise. How, how did you think about it? I, I just you know, completely disagree with that. I, you know, when I joined, I, I sort of believed that until my first day at Index, right? And, you know, I, I showed up for work in London and you're suddenly you're on Zoom. This is pre-pandemic. This is 2012. Suddenly you're on Zoom calls with Berlin, Copenhagen, Stockholm, Helsinki, Portugal, you know, Lisbon, Barcelona on the same day. And VCs are jumping on a plane out of Heathrow in the morning to get to you know, Cologne and they're back in the evening for dinner with their kids. Like it was very obvious to me that the perception I had as an American that, you know, getting to another country is difficult was just wrong. Like, like Europe is, is very small geographically. It's very small physically. Um, it is a lot easier to get from, you know, uh, London to Berlin than it is to get from New York to Boston. I mean, I spent enough hours on the Acela train to know that. So, so the... the I think there's a lot of funds out there. Maybe there's another topic we can talk about, maybe in another podcast. There's a lot of funds out there that have to justify their existence with some kind of artificial geographic barriers that are just not true. And, and our real competitors for most of the best deals in Europe are American funds that don't even have a footprint in Europe. So, so uh, I just don't buy at all that you can't cover different geographies. Also, because American funds have been doing it for 50 years. Right. They sit in, in Palo Alto or, or Menlo Park or Boston or New York, and they're covering deal flow in Chicago and Miami and Detroit, and all kinds of places like th that's been how venture has worked for a really long time. So I, I just don't buy that, you know, ge 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 geographic thing. I will say it's helpful to be embedded. It's helpful to be local. You get some additional deal flow, you get some additional color. And we do that, you know, very well in London. We do that very well in Tel Aviv. We're building out other cities. You know, David's spending a ton of time in Stockholm. I'm spending a ton of time in Copenhagen. We're, we, we both spend a ton of time in Berlin. Like we're, we're, we're embedded in a lot of ecosystems. But if you limit yourself to, to one city or even five cities, you're going to miss that amazing company that's coming out of Arhus or coming out of, you know, Faro. And, and you want to you serve them as well. So, so I, I don't believe the geographic limitation is a particularly meaningful one. It's super interesting. But I also think that, Gil, you're, you're embedded in the fucking VC ecosystem, right? Because you've been writing for quite some time. Everyone, not everyone, but many know your name. Many would point founders in your direction as well. That If you contrast, we have many emerging GPs listening in and, and most of them or many of them don't carry that type of reputation. Do you see that there's 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 a you know sense in, in, in the other thinking for that type of profile? Or would you say that, all you guys that are being told focus on one deal, focus on the city, you know, don't don't listen to to that type of LP. It's a it's just a complicated question, right? But I think my answer comes from my experience in Israel, right? Which, if you know, the years I was working in Israel was 05 to 2012, on the ground, local. Uh, Israel at that point in time was way ahead of Europe in terms of the maturity of the ecosystem, and I very quickly realized that 
yeah, we're seeing a ton of Israeli local deals because we're sitting in Israel and all the Israeli VCs are sitting in Israel. We're all meeting Israeli founders all the time, right? But if you just reduce the sample to the best founders, they were, I was meeting them when they were coming back from California. They weren't hanging around Tel Aviv trying to meet the local VCs. They were going straight to California. They were meeting Lightspeed and Sequoia and Greylock and you know, Battery and Bessemer and all those firms, either with their local Israeli offices or very often in San Francisco, and then getting rejected and coming back. Right? <laughs> and, sometimes, and sometimes they were not getting rejected. Sometimes they were getting investments. And so I realized very quickly that my real competition was not you know, 12 local firms. My real competition was 300 American firms yeah. who had been doing this longer and better than most of the local firms. And if you were a really good founder, you were gravitating towards them because the smart founders are going out there saying, okay, where are the, who are the partners who have any experience at all with a company that looks like mine and have taken it to some kind of successful outcome, either as an operator founder or as an investor board member, right? And, you, you, you know, we're not, and, and, you know, the other thing I would say to sort of shed some light on this topic is as a GP, if you're asking like, what's the advice to GP? What's the product you're selling? Are you selling coverage of your city or your country? Or are you selling performance? And ultimately, we're selling performance to our LPs, especially if your LPs are commercial, a set of commercial LPs. If your LPs are, you know, governments or other people with other agendas other than performance, you may be selling something else. But if you're selling performance to commercial LPs, you know, you're being benchmarked against Sequoia. And, and we have to live with that. And, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm not Sequoia. So, you know, if you're a founder and you can take 4 million bucks from Sequoia, you should take 4 million bucks of Sequoia. If you can't take 4 million bucks of Sequoia, we're pretty good too and you should talk to us, right? But that's what we, we play on a, on a level playing field with these phenomenal funds and that's the real competition. So these sort of artificial geographic constructs are not going to protect you from Sequoia or frankly Index or Excel or any of the other great firms out there that are actively hunting for those deals. I'd love to continue into this uh, rapid hole that I promised you that we would make sure to go into as soon as it, it showed up and it happened. But David, now let's bring you onto the scene. You joined Angular one, two years ago now? Yeah, it was a, a just over a year ago. Tell us, tell us about that story. What brought you to Angular and, and, and what is it that you bring to Angular? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's a good romantic uh, pandemic story, actually. Um, Beautiful. So, so look, my, I, it might be useful to give some background just on me. You know, Gil and I are very different in our experience. I think that one of the reasons we gel so well together is that we're very complementary, but we have incredibly similar beliefs and goals and uh and everything else, but we kind of come from different different backgrounds. So, you know, my back, as Gil was saying, he's kind of this thoroughbred investor, right? He's been doing this for a long, long time, um, and and has a lot of like the scar tissue and stories and successes and performance and everything to to show for it. Uh, my background is much more on the entrepreneurial early stage side of things. So, I've been you know an early stage guy for my whole career, um, mainly across the U.S., New York, Boston, and San Francisco. Uh, always worked in B two B, B two B software, B two B marketplaces always worked on the growth and go-to-market side of things. So you know, most re recently, I was the early employee, first uh, head of growth at Airtable, built that team, built a lot of like the go-to-market uh, functions and strategies there from pre-revenue to greater than 100 million ARR. Like that, that was kind of the scale. And um, you know, as, as part of that, I actually moved from San Francisco to London. It's kind of first boots on the ground over here to think through EMEA expansion. And one of the big things, uh, you know, one of our big tactics when we kind of landed on the ground was we want to make sure we're embedded in the startup ecosystem kind of across Europe. Uh, so I started meeting with startups all the time just to, you know, evangelize Airtable and get to know the local ecosystem. And I truly fell in love with, with the ecosystem and met a ton of amazing, amazing founders. And as part of that process, ended up meeting, meeting Gil. Uh, we actually met on Twitter. 
uh, and uh, which is I mean, how, how lovely that that actually works, right? That you can you can meet people. <laughs> the business version of Tinder. Yeah. So so we're, right, that's the, <laughs> the investor uh, startup version of Tinder. I think that's probably right. Uh, so yeah. So we we met on Twitter. We ended up getting to know each other over the course of months. Uh, he invited me on to. Angular has a insights um, webinar series where right? bring operators, you know, senior operators on from different companies and kind of interview them. And I joined to talk about bottoms up growth, product led growth from the early days at Airtable. It was a really interesting session. I started to meet more of the Angular portfolio. You know, Gil was kind enough to introduce me to some of the CEOs. All of those companies were were super interesting. Um, and it, it was just kind of this really natural process where all of a sudden, you know, I was kind of embedded in the Angular ecosystem without realizing that it had happened. And I was coming to the point where I knew that I wanted to do something new. I, I was over four years at Airtable, kind of wanted to figure out what was next. And, you know, as an early stage guy, I just kind of assumed I would go, you know, start something new or join an early stage company or, or something. Um, but I, I got a call from Gil and kind of a, a proposition, like, what, what if, you know, let's talk about this. What would it look like, you know, if we were to work together? And this is where the romantic story starts. This is when we, you know, middle of the pandemic, we meet, you know, in Regent's Park. We grab a coffee, walk along the canal, right? Uh, just trying to get to know each other. That sounds like a Tinder date. <laughs> really, seriously, as, I, as I'm telling the story, I feel like maybe it was Tinder. Was it? Maybe it wasn't Twitter at all. I'm not sure now. <laughs> maybe, yeah, it makes it <laughs> uh, Anyway, we get we got to know each other better and better, uh, and I, I think we, you know, what I realized at least is Gil had created the the, the only type of venture firm that I would be excited about joining, basically. Right. Angular is uh, number one. Angular is early. Right. We invest first. We are pre-seed first check, whatever you want to call it. Right? We are investing in what I think of as what venture is really all about. Right. It's like we're investing when nobody else believes in something. We're, we're investing in it. We believe in something before anybody else. And isn't that the point of the asset class? It's not about momentum. It's not about investing in something when everybody else thinks it's a good idea. That isn't risk capital, you know? Um, so that was really exciting to me. And and the, the other thing that was exciting is, you know, Angular, like Gil has built this really impressive brand, uh, great performance, but also, he, you know, I realized that we had this shared vision for what Angular could be and how we could build build this together, continue to build this over time. And so it was, it was it's an incredibly entrepreneurial opportunity too. To, it made me really realize and appreciate how starting a venture firm uh, building a venture firm is an entrepreneurial activity, right? It is, and and I'm and, and we're doing all of the things that you hear about startups doing, right? Like we're finding our our new office, we're putting together the furniture, the IKEA furniture together. Like we're doing all of that stuff, right? And that's what you do when you're uh, when when you're kind of early in the venture journey, and and that's really exciting to me too. We, there's something we have to touch on or continue into based on your your, your building Angular, you you. You're building an asset firm and, and, and you're finding out what it's going to be. And I think that before we can go to that, we should get the basics nailed down. But then I think after we need to go into that, what is Angular going to be? Because that, that's, that's an awesome conversation. David, will you take us uh, uh, into the next segment? I literally paraphrase what Andreas said. Uh, I think it's cool for everyone to understand where you're coming from in case they're living under a rock and they have no idea what Angular is doing. Uh, it would be cool to have you guys just run us down really quickly about like fun size, fun strategy stage, you know, what are guys looking for? So everyone has that kind of common ground in terms of understanding where you guys, where you guys come from. Look, the, the high level, you know, we're uh, investing out of our second fund right now. Uh, it's an $80 million fund, um, which closed, uh, you know, ab about a year ago, something like a little more than a year ago. 
Um, we're, we invest across Europe and Israel, as Gil has, has talked about. Uh, we, we invest first, pre-seed, first check, wh- whatever you want to call it, uh, as I just mentioned. Uh, and we invest in, you know, we say we invest in modern enterprise companies, frontier technology companies. W- what that means in practice is uh, usually it's a deeply technical founders or deeply specialized founders who are building uh, either really technical uh you know, products or esoteric products, right? These are products for sophisticated buyers. That's the type of thing that we're focused on. Um, so it could be uh, enterprise grade, top-down sales, you know, long selling cycles. It could be bottoms up, SME focused, PLG, anything in between. Uh, it could be horizontal or vertical. It could be your infrastructure or application, but that's, uh, that's we're, we're really focused on technical uh, founders overall. Um, and uh, I guess the last thing I'll say is this, you know, from a, a fund or a firm strategy point of view, you know, we're investing highly concentrated, you know, in our investments, low volume, high concentration, right? We're making a handful of investments per year and we're deeply, deeply committed to those, those founders. We partner really closely with them, you know, whether we are taking a board seat or not, we are partnering with them as if we are, you know, uh, th- that is our, that is our approach from, you know, we, we think we can, we can, we want to take the, the Series A get a board seat approach from day zero. That absolutely covers it. I, th- I think in terms of, you know, where I can add to that, you know, in the, in the podcast format, it's easier to talk about things that we can't just like write on the website. So I, I think, I, I, think I would highlight two, two points, I think, you know, we, we believe characterize us and maybe set us apart from other firms. I think we are, we're, we're often the only term sheet a company has, okay? And that's for two reasons. It sometimes happens because we're just very fast. Right. So because we are specialists and because we understand certain spaces, we can get to conviction fairly quickly in certain areas. And that's happened frequently. And so sometimes we're the only term sheet just because we're the first term sheet a company's actually gotten. A lot of times we're the only term sheet because no one else wants to write a term sheet. Right. So we get questions from LPs like, you know, do you lose deals? And the answer is like, no, we don't really lose deals. There's there's deals we don't see. There's deals that, you know, don't come to us for a million reasons. Right. Um, but I think of the companies that we see and we want to invest in, we, we, it's extremely rare. I, I don't remember a case where like I gave a term sheet and we lost the deal to some other firm. It just doesn't happen because we, we gravitate towards situations where either it's so compelling to us and the founder to work together that we just kind of, it happens or where we're really comfortable writing a check that no one else will write. Um, and, and that's, that's an important aspect of what we are. And I think, you know, to generalize that statement, I think there are VCs that are access investors and there are VCs that are selection investors. And we're definitely on the, in the selection camp. Like we don't pride ourselves on our ability to like wedge in to be a co-investor or a co-lead or a follower in some round that's hot. We don't do hot rounds. Um, uh, we do contrarian, you know, real venture capital rounds, right? Um, and and often, they, often the companies don't work out, but when they do work out, it's phenomenal for our returns. The other thing I, I want to say is, and this is I think particularly relevant to the, to the time we're in in the market, is David talked about leading rounds. And, and I think we, we really are serious about that. And, and whether you're a lead investor or a co-lead investor, leading around means taking responsibility for getting that company to the next safe harbor, right? Um, you know, we are going to lead you through until you get to the A, right? Um, and sometimes that means digging deep and backing companies when no one else is ready to back them or, or when it would be counterproductive for them to go out and try to fundraise, right? Sometimes it means putting our reputation on the line with our LPs or with our VC relationships to make sure that companies get looked at and you know, funded in a, in, a, in a time and appropriate way. 
Um, and sometimes it means delivering very difficult messages to founders where we, this is what you need to do to get that round done or to get to the next milestone. And, and those conversations can be very challenging. And I think what, what we're learning, what, what we knew before and what we're relearning in this climate, it's all nice. It's all well and good to say, oh, I have high ownership. I'm the lead, right? But there's responsibilities and pain that comes with that. And, and, and that's something that we take quite seriously in our relationships with founders. So we're often, you know, we're often the bad cop. We're often delivering messages that, that no one really wants to hear. We're often asking questions that founders wish we weren't asking. Um, but that's part of the job. And, and I think it's ultimately part of what founders want when they, when they choose a lead. What um you hit it into something that I'd love to ask, and I know it's a somewhat annoying question because you can't really deep dive too much into details, but I, I'd love to hear your take on it. Which is when 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 you start talking about what sets you apart, and you're talking about LPs, um, could you shed some light on why, from your perspective at least, why what is the the profile of LPs that get excited about Angular? What is the profile of LPs that that you guys have been successful in attracting, and and why do you think you know they, they get excited about what you guys are saying? I mean, what what kind of LP would not be excited by Angular? <laughs> Next question. <laughs> you said 10 minutes ago, if you can get around from Sequoia to founder, like go for it. Right. So there, there's, 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 there's a different value proposition that you are bringing to the table. I, I think there's two questions in your question, right? One question is why would a LP choose an emerging manager as opposed to a Sequoia or a CRV or an index or an Excel or one of these firms? Right. And the other question you're asking is why would a LP choose Angular over another emerging manager? Right. Um, and I think those are quite different questions, right? Um, the second one I think is is pretty easy for us to answer because that's why we're here, right? We, we, we have track record, we have performance, and we have an extremely consistent alignment of what we have done in the past, what we say we do today, and our skill set and our capability set in terms of actually being able to show that we're doing that, right? So that, that alignment is very, very, very important. And, and it aligns to performance and our, our past performance, our current performance, the, the profile of our investments, our ownership targets, all, all of those things line up very nicely. We do exactly what we say, what we said we were going to do. I think this first question is, is maybe more interesting, right? And I think that's probably a question you should probably ask an LP, but I, I, I think there are certainly LPs for whom emerging managers are just not interested or small managers are just not interested because they need to write $50 million checks. And a fund like Angular is just never going to be able to accommodate a $50 million check, right? And it takes a lot of work to uncover those managers. But I think a lot of the LPs that we have, whether they're endowments or fund of funds, or even, even family offices, like sophisticated singular multifamily offices, have made a decision that they're looking for alpha in their VC portfolio. And it's worth their time and energy to try to identify managers that might be able to generate alpha. And I think when you are investing in interesting spaces and interesting markets and interesting geographies that are not, they're, they're well covered in terms of capital, but they're not necessarily well covered in terms of quality. And if you can demonstrate that you have some consistent ability to attract, identify, select, access, and invest in uh, companies that can generate outsized returns over time, LPs can conclude that you might actually outperform the benchmark of larger firms. And that's also why our, as a firm, we'll probably stay relatively small because it's very hard. You know, I mean, you guys have probably covered VC math a million times, so I don't need to go through with you, but it's a hell of a lot harder to return a billion dollar fund or a $400 million fund than it is to return a $100 million fund. We think we can offer you know, a consistent level of performance. And I think if you look at the return profile of a fund like, like Angular, right, our you know, expected returns are probably somewhere between you know, 1x in the absolute worst case to 10x plus in the absolute best case. Right? And that return profile, you, it's very hard to get 10x on a, on a billion dollar fund. It happens occasionally. And in the bull market that we've just been through, a lot of funds at all kinds of sizes were posting some pretty crazy returns in certain cases. But LPs are smart enough to know that that's an outlier. Right? Those years are outlier years. Right? That, that's not normal. Even my past performance, I mean, we're talking you know, 30x plus. It's, it's, it's insane. That, that's not 
my real performance, right? It's, it's, it was lifted by the market, right? All of us were lifted by the market. But I think the strategy that we're pursuing is a strategy where you don't need to stretch mentally too much to see how it results pretty consistently in two, three, four, five X funds. That's what we're sort of shooting for. I want to hear a bit what, what, what went through the mind and the conversations between the two of you over the summer where, you know, many were uh, sitting uh, by the side and, and, and not doing too much. And then I remember reading from you, Gil, that, that uh, I think it was July that was the most, the, the month where you did both four. three four. deals at the same time or three four. deals in that month, four. And, and you also wrote your biggest check in that month. Um, I'd love to hear the conversations that, that you two have between you saying, Are, are we doing the right thing here? Are we? What's happening? Why, why are we not doing like everyone else? <laughs> uh, well, here I I, I can say uh, I can like get us into it at least because I, I remember there was a moment when Gil called me. He had just uh, landed in, in Tel Aviv uh, for the summer, and so this was in June, I think it was. And he, he called me and he said, um, you know, I've had a, a week of meetings, and uh, you know, so met with a, a lot of a lot of founders, right? Like you know, this is kind of like backed up from. The previous month, so kind of pushed a lot of meetings into this week, you know, first week back back in Tel Aviv, met with a lot of folks. And I remember him saying something like, I'm incredibly excited by a lot of these companies. And I I feel like I'm, I'm crazy. Like I'm worried that I'm too excited, you know. Uh, so that was number one is, uh, you know, I feel like I'm like, there's a lot of really great entrepreneurs out there right now. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm worried, is my radar off? Like, why am I so excited? So there was a little classic, uh, classic Gil paranoia in there. Uh, which I think is every good investor is exactly like that, by the way. Uh, and then there was also this kind of, uh, and then over the next few weeks, as we were talking about these companies and, and they were the, the deals were evolving, there was this, uh, I, I think Gil at one point said something like, you know, if it felt like they're like, we were playing a game of, of football and everybody else left the field. And all of a sudden, it was like we were just there with the, with the ball and the open net. It was like, what, what, hap like, what happened? Where, where did everybody else go? Um, and I don't, so anyway, I'll let Gil kind of explain what that was like, you know, uh, on the ground there. Uh, but that was my, that, the, that was kind of the real time reflection that he was providing to me. We, we had, you know, the, 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 the four deals that we did, one of them was a company that we met like right in that period and was just deeply exciting to us. And we think that in a year previously, that company might've been priced much, much higher, sort of irrationally high, but they were willing to do around in a, in a rational level. Um, and we've, You know, we've written a check and invited an American firm to join us, and they have. And you know, we're off to the races there, and we're, we're very excited by that one. So that was kind of a quick time period. Um, there's another deal that we that we did in that time period that we had met them ages ago. Um, it's an, it happens to be an Israeli company. We met them ages ago, and we passed. And then we kind of met a whole bunch of other companies across Europe doing the similar thing. And we kept saying, hey, you know, that first company was better, and I, we just couldn't quite get there. And then we met them again, and I. I, I sort of brought David into this process because it was really important for me to have another pair of eyes on this thing. And both of us kind of fell, fell in love with it. And what was quite striking was we had time to work with them on the deal and they were very reasonable about how much they wanted to raise and what the valuation was going to be. Um, and so that was very refreshing after this, you know, several years of like, no one really wanted to think together as partners. They just wanted like, hey, this is what I'm raising at this, this price and so on. There's another investment that we made that was just really technically interesting and we want to, you know, um, get involved early. And another one that, to be honest, you know, we're, we're, we're doing, and it's just taking a long time for that deal to actually close. But so it happened to close during this period, but it wasn't really from that period, but it certainly was a very busy period. And the, and the, the, the perception that we got was that a lot of firms were just kind of locked up. And I think the more, you know, the more, a lot of firms had made a lot of investments at really stupid prices and we had never done that. Our post money average, like basically remained unchanged, has been unchanged since 2007. Like it's at the same. 
um, eight, eight to $10 million post money on average. Obviously we go way above that in some cases and we go below that in some cases, but that's kind of the average of the portfolio and it, it hasn't changed, right? Um, and uh, a lot of firms made a lot of investments at very high prices and I think had to kind of, they, they were taking some time to recalibrate and a lot of them were in deep triage mode trying to figure out what to do with their existing portfolio, which we're also doing by the way, but, but our portfolio is a lot more healthily valued and, and you know, very capital efficient. Um, and I think a lot of funds also that were more political than us because you know, we're, we're, we're a multi-GP firm, but we try to operate as a single GP firm, right? Either because we're two individual single GPs doing deals and it's very important for us to have that autonomy um, because I really believe strongly that if David has to get my you know, full approval for everything and I have to get David's full approval for everything, we're going to end up doing worse deals, right? So that's very important to our culture that like, you know, David's second deal, I haven't even met the guys yet, right? Because it was really important for me that David not appear to them as if he needs my consent because he doesn't, right? Um, but I think firms that are way more political in this climate locked up completely because no one junior really wants to bring anything to the table. No one wants to approve anything. There's no incentive. No one wants to do a capital call. It's all kind of locked up. And so we felt very, you know, we, we felt like it was just a, an amazingly opportune time to, to do some great investing. And I hope that persists because I think we're, we're in that period right now and valuations are reasonable. A lot of our competitors are spooked. Um, founders are getting really smart and thoughtful about how much they need to raise and why. Um, and you know, one of these companies, for example, if they're raising $2 million, that's going to last them for two years, right? They're coming up with these very, very capital efficient plans. And when you're investing in phenomenal technical teams, that's all they need. One thing I'll pull out from what Gil just said that I think is really important is something we're seeing, which is valuations are normalizing a little bit, right? They're, they're coming down a little bit, but the smartest founders out there are, are realizing that they need to raise just as much if not more than what they were going to raise at the higher valuations, because they want to have enough time, you know, to survive through whatever this market is going to do, because we don't know what the market is going to look like in 12, 18 months. Um, so one, I think that leads to two things. One is it leads to uh, companies that are keeping their burn really low. They're very capital efficient. Uh, it leads to companies that are incredibly focused, right? They're, they're much more willing to have the conversation about what are the three things we actually need to prove versus kind of trying to do everything and, you know, it's like, yeah, sure, we'll add in a token. Like, why not? Uh, and, and, and what that means from an investor's point of view with valuations normalizing, but rounds staying the same or even going up a little bit is this is an even better opportunity to build ownership in you know, potentially amazing companies, uh, especially if you're investing for, like first, you know, early, like what we do. I'm curious to ask, how about when you go, when you think back to, to the last year and you have seen haircuts having to be done across portfolios in many firms in this current environment. Um, I'm curious to hear, how do you think about both your own behavior and your colleagues' behavior in the market? Uh, and, and how have you guided your portfolio through this period? I mean, I'll just, uh, well, I'll just uh, put a point on something Gil said before, which is, you know, when talking about Angular, Angular strategy and who we are as a firm and culturally who we are, you know, we really are not, we're, we're selection, right? Not access investors. We're not really momentum investors. So it's, it's very rare for us to be investing in a company that is super hyped and like the classically, the classically overvalued company, right? Like that isn't the type of company you'll find in our portfolio. That being said, in a, in a bull market, right? Like the rising tide is lifting all boats. So I think it would be reasonable to say that pretty much every single GP's portfolio is, is overvalued or was overvalued last year. Right. Like, I think we can just say that categorically. That's kind of at, at a high level how I would, I, I would uh, explain how we feel, feel about things. Like, I think we're really uh, excited about all the companies in our portfolio. Don't feel like they are 
vastly overvalued in any real way. And in fact, a lot of them have raised since the downturn has begun. And it's, you know, like there's a lot of positive signal, you know, uh, across things, uh, across the portfolio. Um, But we also don't have the the, the kind of the classic hypey deal that is getting a 50% haircut right right now or, or something like that. No, I, I think that, that pretty much covers it, right? I mean, we, we were very disciplined on, on our entry points. We've been fortunate with a bunch of markups, but we're quite comfortable with where those companies are. We don't have any, we, we, we advise consistently. We, there, there were, look, there were firms running around. We all know the names of those firms. There were firms running around that were giving completely ridiculous valuations to a lot of things. And we never introduced our portfolio companies to those firms. Um, so the number of markups we have by firms like that is zero, right? Um, we have markups from firms like Lightspeed, you know, Boldstart, Bessemer, you know, firms that know what they're doing and, and we're very comfortable with those. And we have CEOs that are very capital efficient. Um, you know, we have one company that just told me that they, they're trimming burn a little bit and now they have 60 months of cash. We have the average runway right now across our entire portfolio is 19 months across our entire portfolio. Um, that's the average. Um, there's obviously a few companies that are, that are, you know, probably in trouble, but, but many others have, you know, 36 months, 40 months, 24 months, like months and months of cash. And, and that's assuming no revenue growth at all for those companies, right? One of our companies has six months of cash, but they're default alive, meaning they can fire two people and they're break even forever, right? So, so, so there's, there's, there's a lot of, you know, we, we're very comfortable with the valuations of these companies because we don't expect to be forced to mark them down. There's obviously a few that we're concerned about and need to think about that. I think... The broader question for GPs, which you also asked, Andreas, is, is you know, what, what's a GP supposed to do now with these overvalued positions, right? And, you know, the smartest thing that I learned in this, you know, period is that uh, the, the really, the, the, the smartest thing we, we could have done as, as collectively as GPs is be very careful about the markups in the first place. In other words, if a firm that is known to be aggressively pricing things is marking up your deals, don't mark them up. Just leave them where they were, Right. If your LPs asked you, why didn't you mark them? That's a, that's a much better question to answer than why didn't you mark it down, right? Um, so uh, fortunately, we don't have any cases like that, but I think that's something that we would be on the lookout for if, we, if, we, if a markup was happening in our portfolio that we didn't feel like we could justify, we'd probably leave it marked where it is. And I, I think we, we've, we've even had conversations with our LPs in, in light of what David said. We went to our LPs and said, hey, look, what if we just marked our entire portfolio down by 50%? And they're like, no, you have no reason to do that. These are good, good. In other words, we, we're, we're thinking it through with our LPs, which we consider our partners, right? And I think they're probably right. We, there's no reason to just blanket mark down everything, but people have to be thoughtful. And there probably was no reason to blanket market mark up everything. Um, you just have to be very, very careful. We're, we're going through sort of case by case and thinking about it. Uh, but it, it, it's, a, it's a difficult time. And, and we're also asking ourselves some very tough questions about, okay, which are the companies that, you know, we, we have an opportunity fund. We have the resources to, to support companies, Right. Um, which are the companies that we are going to lean in and, and support and in some cases maybe rescue um, or in which are the companies where we're not willing to do that and, and how do we message that to founders um, and how do, we, how do we have those conversations really early? Like I, I can think of one case in our portfolio where they're, 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 they have 12 plus months of runway and we're having these conversations today because I want to make sure that, they're, that they're, they understand our thinking and that we communicate clearly to them what do we think it's going to take to raise the next round. I, I've been thinking a lot about the, the impact of really hyped high valuations really early. And I don't, I don't know if this, it's, I feel like I'm, I will just get in trouble for saying this, but you know, why, Please why do. feels like they're, they're it's, <laughs> it's kind of bad. It's, it's bad. I think it's bad for everybody is basically my, my claim. And it's bad for, it's, so it's bad for VC as an asset class overall, because the returns for the asset class are just going to look way worse. You know, if we want more people to be investing in VC, the, the thing to do is not to invest in pre-seed companies at a hundred million post because 
you know, you're not going to return any funds. You're not going to return any capital to investors if that's what you keep on doing. So it makes it makes investors' life really hard. I think it's like from a long term perspective, it's a bad idea. But it's it's also really bad for founders because if if you're if you're raising at insane valuations really early, now you have what you raised five on fifty. Okay, now you have five million dollars to somehow justify a fifty million dollar valuation. Not just fifty. You probably you want to get more, you you want to raise an up round. So you have five million dollars to justify a one hundred million dollar valuation. And that is just every single thing needs to go right in the next two years for you to pull that off. And early stage companies are messy. Like everything doesn't go right by definition. You know, if it was going to go right, if 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 everything's going to go right, then that shouldn't be venture money that's investing in it, right? Because we're we're high risk capital. Uh, so it the it, it all of it just feels uh, feels kind of dangerous and, and bad for the ecosystem overall. This is why I love David, right? Because philosophically, we're so aligned on this point, right? And and you know, we have been trying to say this to founders in some form or another for three years. And now it's a lot easier to make that case. Guys, we have to uh, move to the quick fire round. Unfortunately, we couldn't talk about everything we wanted to do to talk about. Sorry, um, for our listeners, we had another topic that we wanted to deep dive on, which was a post by Gil called Back to Basics, My VC Manifesto, which came out in October 2021. If you haven't heard about it, Google it, check it out. It's really interesting. A bunch of, of cool insights there that we wanted to discuss, but we don't have the time. So we're jumping into the quick fire round. And the quick fire round, Gil David, is how we like to end our episodes. We ask quick answer questions. 30 to 60 seconds each. And I hope you're ready because I'm going to jump right straight into the first one, which is what areas, technologies, or sectors excite you the most that other people around you don't really feel that excited about? And Gil, I'd love to hear you your answer first. I like, you know, boring, heavy industry, like software for boring, heavy industry. We've done field servers, we've done oil and gas, we've done, <laughs> you know, space optics, like, you know, software only efficient plays for really tough industries. I, I, I think are pretty cool. I think probably what you're supposed to say when you're asked these types of questions <laughs> is you're supposed to actually say something that everybody's really excited about, right? And sounds smart. Like I should say like artificial intelligence and stable diffusion or, or something like that, you know, but I, I do wonder if now is the time to invest in things that seem like they're really getting hammered. You know, uh, maybe now is the time to invest in e-commerce because e all this growth got pulled forward during the pandemic and now it's leveling out and everybody's running in the opposite direction, but there's still great entrepreneurs doing really interesting stuff. One of my favorite answers to this question was a simple answer that was waste management, which I found interesting. <laughs> Second question, uh, Gil, what are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are fundraising? I, I think alignment is the most important thing. Like make sure that you have an alignment between you know the, the experience base you have and the track record that you have, the fund model you're trying to build and the, 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 the tools that you're putting in place for sourcing and, and assisting, right? For a lot of, you know, if your track record is X and your fundraising strategy is Y, that's a really tough thing to, you know, you've only done angel deals, but you want to lead rounds, right? Th those things are, are really challenging. Third and final question, Gil, I'll start with you again. What's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in venture? You know, VCs always talk about being helpful and adding value. I think the, the reality is that our ability to actually add value is, is, is actually quite limited, even the, even the best species in the world. It's, you know, they, there are, a lot of this comes down to founders, and I think a lot of our value add is in working with founders to help them be the best version of themselves, as opposed to, oh, I can bring you 20 customers. Right? I, I, I can't bring you 20 customers. I can maybe bring you two customers or four customers, but I can't bring you 20 customers, and nobody can bring you 20 customers. You have to figure out how to get your own customers. And... and Founders that have these expectations or VCs that have these expectations of themselves, you cannot will a company to success. I, I, I can't do the work for the team. I can help in a lot of ways. And, and it's very hard to talk about that in a 30-second answer. But that's, that's the most counterintuitive thing. Like, like the, the amount of effort that we invest in helping and the, and the frustration that there's not more we can do, right? I love that answer because it's, it's the opposite answer to, uh, you know, 
when you ask about uh, about venture capital's value add, yeah. you know, then it's like, well, maybe we're not meant to really give all that value add that we have kind of built up around ourselves as an industry that we actually do. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that, uh, obviously, Gil. And the thing that I'll say quick, I think most counter counterintuitive thing for me is, you know, the investors who are the most well-respected by entrepreneurs, the investors who have the best reputation with LPs, who are the most highly performant, are not the most active on Twitter and might not even have a Twitter account, right? Like, and that provides some useful perspective, I think, on what really matters. I'm going to stop tweeting immediately. <laughs> I don't know if it works. I don't know if the causation works in that direction. I love that as well. <laughs> Fuck, that's not good for neither David or I, but I also think that you guys are quite active. So yeah. <laughs> at least you can find partner love there, right? So if it's not good, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Gil, David, thanks so much for joining us today. It was amazing having you here on the European VC. And thanks so much for keeping on contributing to the ecosystem with your writings. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the European VC the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. The 15th of December is the day you need to have in mind. EUVC is hosting a webinar with Kathy, David and Andreas. Kathy will show us how to approach PR as an individual and as a firm. Sign up at eu.vc forward slash events.